This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com code program. Are you fascinated by unexplainable crimes, conspiracies, and fringe culture? Well, step into the crawl space. From tales of survival and deepfakes to synchronicities and cryptozoology, Crawl Space is a podcast that brings you weekly stories of the mysterious, harrowing, and bizarre. Search Crawl Space wherever you listen to podcasts. Crawl Space, where crime meets culture. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America... It's hard to imagine a more terrifying scenario for parents than someone breaking into their home and harming their children. If the worst happens, we can only hope that the people responsible for catching the perpetrator are pursuing the truth, no matter how unlikely it seems. In some cases, it's more palatable to those investigating to believe that the blame lies with the people closest to the victim, and often easier to make the evidence fit a theory than to form a theory from the evidence. While more and more cases are being solved retrospectively through advancements in forensic science, some wrongs can never be righted because of procedural and prosecutorial errors. Sometimes justice can never be served. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to episode 58 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law & Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. Shortly after 2.20 p.m. on February 14, 1993, police dispatchers in Buffalo, New York received a call that a 13-year-old girl had been found dead at her home on Babcock Street. Crystal Lynn Gerard, known as Crystal, was discovered by her mother, Linda Jack, that afternoon. Crystal was found lying almost naked on her bed, and she had bruises around her face, neck, eyes, and hands, and there was a cut on her chest. 
Lynn was shocked as first responders swarmed into her house and began looking around her daughter's bedroom for clues. Lynn spotted a rolling pin and a bloody towel nearby and pointed them out to the officers. During the autopsy, the medical examiner, Dr. Sungguk Bike, determined that Crystal had been strangled to death sometime between 11.30 p.m. and 5.30 a.m. The cut on her chest had been caused by her German shepherd's claws as he pawed at her after her death. Crystal's murder shocked the community, not least because her short life had been remarkably hard to begin with. Crystal was born to a teenage mother, Linda Jack, who was only 16 years old when she welcomed her daughter into the world. When she was five years old, her mother met a man named Raymond Gerard, who became Crystal's adopted father. Soon after, Raymond and Lynn had a baby boy they named Edward. The relationship between Lynn and Raymond was violent and toxic, and Raymond took his anger out on the children as well. One relative spoke to reporters anonymously about Raymond Gerard's treatment of Crystal. On one occasion, he forced the little girl to hold her hands over a hot stove as punishment. She took a drink without asking. Another time, he cut her hair because she had spoken to a boy. When Crystal supposedly misbehaved, Raymond locked her in the basement with the dogs overnight. The relative said, It wasn't normal. He would be jealous if she talked to a boy. When she was seven years old, Raymond began to sexually abuse Crystal. She eventually reported the abuse, and Raymond was sentenced to five to 15 years in prison following a trial in 1991. Unfortunately for Crystal, Raymond's conviction didn't spell the end of her turbulent childhood. When Crystal was around 12 years old, her mother began dating a man called Dennis Donahue. Like many of Lynn's previous relationships, it quickly became violent. Edward, who was only eight years old at the time, later spoke to the Buffalo News and recalled, He was always nice with us kids, but he had little episodes where he would burst out screaming and we'd see them fighting and call 911 to break up the fight. These fights became increasingly dangerous, and the young siblings tried desperately to protect their mother. Edward remembered. She usually kicked him in the groin to get him off of her. Another time, he was choking her, and my sister tried to call 911, and he smashed the phone with an axe. I had to run to the payphone to call 911. Barely in her teens, Crystal took on the role of being a guardian to her younger brother. Her childhood best friend, Catherine Cocatilo, said, She was pretty much Eddie's mother. She made sure he was fed. She made sure he didn't get into trouble. She was the one who would tell him what was right and wrong, because Lynn wasn't around for the most part. Lynn drank a lot and she spent many nights out in local bars with boyfriends leaving Crystal home to take care of Eddie. Crystal was an honorable student and a great friend, but behind closed doors, it seemed as though she couldn't escape abuse. Her friend Mary Cox told the Buffalo News that she remembered seeing bruises on Crystal's hip, back, and arm when they got changed for gym class. Mary recalled, I asked her where she got those bruises, and she said, I fell, I'm clumsy. She said she fell, but she wouldn't meet my eyes. Shortly before Crystal's death, Mary witnessed a physical fight between Crystal and her mother, Lynn. She urged her friend to tell a teacher, but Crystal was too afraid, Mary recalled. She said she couldn't tell 
because she'd get into trouble and they'd take Eddie away and split them up. She told me, don't say anything. As word of Crystal's death spread, the investigators tried to piece together the events leading to the murder. On the night of Crystal's death, Lynn went to a wedding with Donahue on Clinton Street. They were arguing after they left the celebration, and by the time they got back to the house on Babcock Street, Lynn was ready to break things off with Donahue. Donahue threatened Lynn, so at 11.44 p.m., she called 911 and told them that she had an unwelcome guest in her house. She wanted him to leave. Donahue knocked the phone out of Lynn's hands, but Crystal quickly made another call to police. Donahue left and Lynn told Crystal not to answer the door to anyone because she was going out again. She told Crystal, Don't answer the door when the police come. I don't want to get in any trouble for leaving you home alone. Lynn made her way to the bar her mother Betty ran, Babcock Grill, which was close to the house. Donahue followed Lynn to the bar, and when he saw her talking with an old boyfriend, Michael Nichter, he confronted her. Nichter told Donahue to leave Lynn alone and to stay away from the house, and Donahue left. At around 4.30 a.m., Lynn called a teenage neighbor asking her to check on Crystal and Edward because she said Donahue was acting psychotic and she was worried. Lynn and Nichter went back to the house on Babcock Street at around 5 a.m. After checking on the kids, Lynn put the telephone and the family's German Shepherd into Crystal's room and went to spend the night at Nichter's house. When they arrived, Donahue was there, armed with a Swiss Army knife. After Nichter flashed his gun, Donahue left in a rage. Lynn returned to the house at around 2 p.m. the following afternoon and made her way to Crystal's bedroom. She told police in her statement, I opened up her door and I noticed her table was knocked over and she was laying on her bed and I called her name. I could not see very well from coming in and the sun and it was dark in her room. I finally adjusted my eyes and seen she was naked. I called her name. I was screaming. She did not respond. Lynn was taken to the station and questioned for several hours. She was asked about an injury to her fingernail. In an expressionless tone, she said that she couldn't remember what had happened, but she might have heard it picking up her young son. Lynn immediately told the police that she suspected Dennis Donahue had killed her daughter, and officers went to Donahue's house to speak with him. There, they collected the clothes Donahue had been wearing the night before, and on the left arm of the shirt, there was a small blood stain. Donahue was asked to come to the station, and he agreed to submit to a polygraph examination. The polygraph examiner believed that Donahue was being truthful, so he was excluded as a suspect, and the blood on his shirt? It wasn't tested. During the autopsy conducted on Crystal's remains by Dr. Bike, a toxicology screen was ordered. There were traces of cocaine and benzoylic cognine, a breakdown byproduct of cocaine, found in Crystal's system. The level of cocaine found was 0.02 micrograms per milliliter of blood and 0.06 milligrams per microliter of benzolacgonine. The lowest amount of cocaine that can usually be detected at autopsy is 0.02, and the lowest average level of cocaine found in overdoses falls between 100 and 900 micrograms. So Dr. Bike determined that the cocaine did not contribute to Crystal's death. The medical examiner believed that someone had beaten Crystal before strangling her to death but the police had yet to catch her killer. 
Months passed without any progress until an informant told the investigators that he had heard a confession from the killer. 30-year-old Wayne Hudson was a longtime friend of the DeJack family. He also had a lengthy criminal history, and in October 1993, he was indicted for a third felony offense. A three-strike provision under New York law meant that as a third-time felon, Hudson was automatically facing a life sentence. So he asked to speak with the homicide detectives investigating Crystal's murder. Hudson told investigators that he had been at the bar around three months after the murder when he had a conversation with Linda Jack, the victim's mother. Hudson claimed that Lynn told him, I did it. When he asked what she meant, Lynn apparently answered and said, I hurt my daughter. Hudson explained that Lynn told him she had come home drunk and began to argue with Crystal. The argument turned physical and Crystal fell unconscious, but Lynn didn't think she was dead at the time. He said that it had happened after she called the police to remove Donahue from the house, and she stayed quiet when the police arrived at the door just before midnight and left the house shortly thereafter. Hudson couldn't recall where the conversation had taken place, or the date or time of day, but he swore he was telling the truth. The prosecutor's office convened a grand jury within weeks of the revelation, and Lynn's ex-boyfriend, Dennis Donahue, was called as a state witness. After hearing about the supposed confession that Lynn made to Hudson months after the murder, and with testimony that she seemed indifferent in police interviews, the grand jury returned with an indictment against 29-year-old Linda Jack. In the months after her daughter's murder, Lynn had quieted down. She had finally met a good man, Chuck Peters, and she was six months pregnant with twins when the police arrived at her door on December 10, 1993. They were there to arrest her. Although she protested her innocence, Lynn was remanded into custody until a hearing later that month. Her ex, Raymond Gerard, who was convicted of sexually abusing Crystal three years earlier, immediately sought to have his conviction overturned. Gerard claimed that he had never abused Crystal and that Lynn coerced her to testify against him. Gerard's brother, Robert, spoke out after Lynn's arrest. He stated, I believe she did it. The only thing that surprised me is that the arrest took so long. Crystal's biological father, John Addison, had not seen his daughter for years. He said that Lynn and Gerard had kept him away from Crystal, but she had gone to spend summers with his parents in Pennsylvania. John told reporters, I don't want to defend Lynn. I don't want to trash Lynn. The court will do that. But my daughter can't defend herself anymore. She was a good girl and she doesn't deserve to be dragged into this any more than she already is. In late December, Lynn was released on a $72,000 bond, but she was faced with child custody battles as her son Edward had been taken into foster care because of the charges pending against her. Exactly one year after Crystal's murder, Lynn gave birth to twin boys, and, like Edward, they were immediately taken into foster care. The trial began in April 1994. The prosecution was led by Joseph Marusik and Erie County District Attorney Frank J. Clark. The state's case was that Linda Jack was a drunk and a drug abuser who was regularly negligent and violent towards her daughter. They argued that Lynn had killed Crystal in a drunken rage and set about covering her steps by stripping her naked, going out to a bar for the night, 
and calling people she knew to check on Crystal in the hopes that they would discover the body. Neighbors testified that Crystal was often left at home, alone, to look after her younger brother while Lynn went out with different men, and the prosecution's witnesses, Dennis Donahue and Wayne Hudson, corroborated statements about Lynn's drinking habits and temper. Lynn's defense attorney, Andrew Lotiempo, told the jury they couldn't trust the testimony of Hudson, as it was likely he had taken a deal from the prosecutors to avoid a life sentence for his third felony crime. Lotempio called Hudson a dirtbag and a rat who got backed into a corner and said that he invented the confession to get himself out of a hole. Donahue had also been granted transactional immunity and a reduced sentence for an unrelated crime. Lotiempo didn't defend Lynn's poor parenting and called her a dingbat drunk making the wrong choices, but insisted that she had not murdered her daughter. Prosecutors claim that Lynn killed Crystal in a 14-minute window between the time she called 911 at 11.44 p.m. and when the police arrived at the door to their flat. Lotiempo suggested that Donahue could have killed Crystal after being rejected by Lynn. Donahue had no alibi for that night. And the police hadn't even tested blood found on his shirt the following day. On April 20th, 1994, the jury of seven women and four men found Linda Jack guilty of one count of second-degree murder. Lynn burst into tears upon hearing the verdict, and she was taken to Bedford Hills Maximum Security Prison, almost 400 miles away from Buffalo. Her mother, sister, and partner Chuck stood firmly by her side as she continued to protest her innocence. But the separation from her support network proved too much. Lynn was placed on suicide watch before being moved to a psychiatric unit for a time. Lynn later recalled, I couldn't stand it. I couldn't bear it. I don't know how to explain the pain. I just wanted to die and go be with her because I literally lost my best friend. After regaining custody of the twins, Chuck brought the boys to visit Lynn in prison after traveling for hours on the bus. The baby boys didn't know their mother, and Lynn was devastated at the thought that they never would. After Lynn's conviction, her sister, Carol, said she had spoken to Hudson. He told her he was sorry that he had testified against Lynn to avoid jail time. The DA denied offering Hudson a deal in exchange for his testimony about the alleged confession, but instead of receiving an automatic life sentence for his third felony crime, Hudson was charged with forging a business check a misdemeanor for which he received probation. Carol spoke with reporters saying that Hudson had been a boarder at her house before and that was how he knew Lynn. Carol said, What has happened to the justice system here? Wayne Hudson has a record a mile long. He is a three-time loser and his criminal file was sealed before my sister's trial by prosecutors. Wayne lived in my house at the time of this murder and knew everything about the case. I have recently spoken with Wayne, and he told me how sorry he was to use Lynn the way he did to get out of jail. Before the sentencing hearing, Lynn's attorney, Lotiempo, revealed that he had learned that Dennis Donahue had been suspected in the murder of Carol Reed, committed on September 9, 1975. Lotiempo explained that witnesses had come forward to say that they heard Donahue threaten to get even with Lynn after she rejected him on the night Crystal was killed. The lead prosecutor, Marusik, 
said that Buffalo police had questioned Donahue about the murder of Carol Reed in 1975 and 1976, but he had agreed to a polygraph, and he had said he was out celebrating his birthday on the night of the murder. Carol Reed lived in the same building as Donahue at the time, and she had complained that he was harassing her before her death. The prosecutor was certain that the evidence of Donahue's history of being a murder suspect would not have changed the jury's minds. The judge agreed, calling the evidence a red herring, and decided the sentencing hearing would go ahead in June 1994 as planned. At the sentencing hearing before County Judge Michael D'Amico, Prosecutor Marusic said that Lynn was totally unremorseful and had complained that she had been railroaded in the case. Judge D'Amico sentenced Lynn to serve the maximum sentence of 25 years to life in prison for her daughter's murder. Lynn cried out and said, I didn't do this. Judge D'Amico answered swiftly, 12 jurors are convinced that you did. I think the jury was right. Lynn was inconsolable as she was led from the courtroom. Her sister Carol spoke with reporters outside the court, saying that Donahue was a serial killer who had framed her sister. Lynn's attorneys attempted to appeal against the conviction in the years that followed, but it was upheld by the appellate division of the state Supreme Court. Lynn had to resign herself to the fact that she would not see her sons grow up and would not be eligible for parole until 2019. In 2007, an unsolved murder that occurred in Buffalo seven months after Crystal was killed was reviewed by the City of Buffalo Police Department's cold case squad. Detectives Charles Aronica, Dennis Delano, and Mary Gagluza combed through the files on the case to start a new investigation in the hopes of catching the killer. Joan Gambra, a 42-year-old mother of three, was living on Hillside Avenue, South Buffalo, with her youngest daughter, Kathleen, in 1993. Joan worked at a church pantry, and when she was late to work on the morning of September 9, 1993, her co-workers went to check on her. They spotted something alarming through the window and called 911. Firefighter Michael Bushart was among the first to arrive on scene. He entered the property through an unlocked window, then unlatched the front door to allow other first responders inside. In the living room, he saw the body of a naked woman lying face up on a pull-out sofa bed, and beside her was a naked little girl in the fetal position. The woman was identified as Joan Jambra and was pronounced dead at the scene. However, the little girl, her 11-year-old daughter Kathleen, was still breathing, so she was rushed to the hospital. There was no evidence of forced entry at the home, but it became apparent that Joan fought hard for her life as she was raped and then strangled. Joan's body was taken for an autopsy, and it was determined that she had been choked to death. Her fingernails were clipped to preserve any DNA evidence found beneath them. The case went cold until 2007, when her sister, Trish, who attended the same church as cold case detective Dennis Delano, approached him and asked him for help. Joan's estranged husband, Sam Jambra, had been the prime suspect for years after her murder. He had threatened her in public before and abused Joan's older children from a previous marriage. But when the evidence was reviewed, the skin samples found beneath Joan's nails were sent for DNA analysis, and the results proved that Sam had not been her killer. In June 2007, Detective Lissa Redmond took over as the lead investigator on the cold case, 
and she spoke with Joan's relatives to try and see if there was anything they had missed. Joan's daughter, Jackie, told the investigators about a strange phone call she had received after her mother's murder. The caller said his name was Dennis, and he had dated Joan before she was killed. He added that he was a bartender and asked Jackie about the progress of the investigation and if the police had any suspects. The investigators recognized the name, and after looking into the suspect's background, they noticed a startling pattern emerge. The Dennis in question was Dennis Donahue, who had been questioned about the 1975 murder of Carol Reed, a woman found naked, face up, sexually assaulted and lacerated by a knife, found at the scene, just like Joan Jambra. What's more, both murders occurred on September 9th, Donahue's birthday. The cold case detectives went to question Donahue, who had retired and was living with his sister in Kenmore. At first, he said he didn't know Joan, but eventually Donahue claimed he had gone on a date with her and had consensual oral sex with her in his car. He agreed to provide a DNA sample. The sample was compared to the DNA found under Joan's nails at the time of her autopsy in 1993. The results came back on September 17, 2007, and it was a match. One in 23.5 billion. Detectives arrested Donahue for murder and began reviewing the other cases where his name had come up, including the murder of Crystal Gerard. Unfortunately, there was no evidence left to compare in the Carol Reed case, but the news that Donahue had been arrested for murder brought Linda Jack's murder conviction back into the spotlight. Lynn's attorney, Lotiempo, told the news, I have always believed that Dennis Donahue killed Crystal Lynn. I begged the prosecutors to rethink the charge. I begged the jury. Every time I had a door slammed in my face. After announcing Donahue's arrest, Buffalo Police Deputy Commissioner Daniel Dorenda said at a press conference, It's possible he's a serial killer. He's a person of interest in two other homicide cases. When Lynn was told about the development by Buffalo News reporter Tom Precious in the visiting area of Bedford Hills Prison, she collapsed. Lynn said she always knew Donahue was a killer and lamented on the 14 years she had spent in prison trying to protest her innocence. Edward, her oldest son, had grown up in foster care before joining the Army and serving two tours in Iraq. Lynn had been terrified that she would lose another child while he was away. While awaiting results on a DNA comparison between Donahue's profile and samples found at Crystal's murder scene, Lynn said that she was confident the truth would come out and she just wanted to go home. The key witness, Wayne Hudson, refused to recant his testimony 13 years after the trial. He told the Buffalo News, She dated this Donahue guy, and just like I told the detectives, either one did it and the other took the fall, or they did it together and they're both evil. Damn right, evil. A vigil was held in Crystal's memory after Donahue's arrest for Joan Giambra's murder. Her childhood friend, Arlene Fulmer, remarked that Crystal was one in a million, and she never got to fulfill her dreams. Arlene said, For her to be taken away, it's not right. I mean, she probably would have been a lawyer or a doctor. She would have amounted to something, unlike a lot of people around here who just don't care. I mean, I loved her so much, I named my daughter after her to keep her memory going. Later that month, the provisional DNA results came back. 
DNA consistent with Donahue's had been found on Crystal's bedroom wall and on a swab collected from her vagina. The district attorney wanted the evidence tested using modern technology, and when asked if he would oppose a motion to set aside Lynn's conviction, he replied, If it turns out that the re-examination of this evidence shows nothing more than a sexual encounter between the victim and Donahue, without knowing when it occurred, or without any evidence putting him at the scene of the crime when she was killed, then yes, we would oppose the motion. His comments infuriated those who knew Lynn and Crystal. Lynn's attorney said, I'm angry with whoever is suggesting that there was some kind of ongoing sexual contact or inappropriate relationship between these two. To insinuate that this girl was carrying on with this guy and not telling anyone? It's really repulsive. Cold case investigators were adamant that there was no evidence to suggest that Linda Jack had been able to kill her daughter, stage the crime scene, and leave before the police arrived in just 11 minutes. Lynn's attorney agreed with the detectives. He said that the DNA proved that Donahue had been at the scene on the night of the murder. At a hearing about vacating the conviction, Lotiempo told the judge, he confronted her, strangled her, stripped her, and mutilated her body. Give me another logical explanation as to why a 40-year-old man's DNA is in a dead, naked little girl's blood on her bed and on the wall and in her private parts. On November 28, 2007, Supreme Court Judge John Mikulski ordered that Linda Jack be freed immediately without bail, pending a retrial. She was the first woman in the United States to have a murder conviction overturned based on new DNA evidence. In shock and overwhelmed with emotion, Lynn sobbed as her handcuffs were removed and she was able to hug her 13-year-old twin boys. Lynn spoke with Buffalo News reporter Don Esmond. She spoke about the regrets that she had over her conviction and the fact that her statements about Donahue's involvement were ignored and said, Had they listened to me then, I think Joan would be alive today. I lost my daughter. I was wrongfully convicted of killing her. I was threatened in jail, and I knew that her killer was walking free. Lynn revealed that she had considered taking her own life, but she knew that would mean she would be remembered as her daughter's killer. Her twin boys were now the same age as Crystal had been when she was murdered, and she had to get to know them now that she was out of prison. Chuck had stayed by Lynn's side throughout her incarceration, and they had even gotten married six years before her release. Chuck said, I knew her before this happened. I had seen her and Crystal Lynn together many times. I knew there was no way it was possible Lynn could have done it. They were as much friends as they were mother-daughter. Lynn didn't expect Chuck to stay with her, and she told him on more than one occasion to find someone else, but he didn't. Chuck went on to say, Some people are worth waiting for. We have kids together. Once I'm in, I'm in all the way. I just wondered if I'd still be here when she got out. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. While many offered Lynn their support and condolences after her lengthy stint in prison, not everyone was satisfied that she was innocent. Detective Sergeant James Lonergan worked the case, and he wrote to the Buffalo News to say, This case was investigated by seasoned homicide detectives who, combined, had worked hundreds of murder cases, not just a few. Based on our investigation and evidence gathered at the time, I believe and still do that Lynn DeJack is guilty. That stance was also taken by the district attorney, who announced that he would retry Lynn DeJack based on Hudson's testimony. Lynn welcomed the prospect of a retrial and was confident that it would mean she was fully exonerated. Her attorney said they would tell the jury about Donahue's DNA at the scene of the murder. Donahue could not invoke the Fifth Amendment to not incriminate himself in the trial because he already had immunity in the case. But if he refused to take the stand, he could be charged with contempt. With the chance of life imprisonment facing him for Joan Jambra's murder, the sentence for contempt probably wouldn't faze him. As D.A. Clark said, If somebody is already sentenced to 25 years to life, the idea of six months more in jail isn't very intimidating. In January 2008, the DA asked the judge to allow them to prosecute Lynn on three different felony charges, including second-degree depraved indifference murder. Under the Double Jeopardy Clause, Lynn could never be tried for second-degree intentional murder again, as she had been acquitted of that at her trial and convicted of depraved indifference murder. The DA explained that things had changed since 1993, and the cause of Crystal's death did not fall under depraved indifference. It was an intentional act, meaning Lynn could still be tried for the same again. D.A. Clark said, If the judge finds in our favor, second-degree murder is back on the table. If she is convicted of that charge, she could wind up going back to prison for another 12 years. At that time, we did not think we could pursue a murder-2 case at the retrial, because the state courts have redefined the elements of a depraved indifference murder since 1994. We've since done further research, and now we believe we can pursue murder too. And if she is convicted of that, she could get more prison time. You have to pay to play. She was the one that wanted a new trial. She thought she had nothing to lose by going to trial again. But if the judge rules in our favor, that may not be the case. It's up to the judge. A new investigation was opened by the Buffalo Police and the District Attorney's Office, and they asked a well-known pathologist, Dr. Michael Baden, to review the evidence. Dr. Baden was reported as being a pathologist for hire who notoriously aided the O.J. Simpson defense and purported the suicide theory that got Phil Spector off of a murder charge. Baden said that after reviewing the file and the crime scene photos, he noticed a large amount of froth coming from Crystal's mouth and nose. After seeing fluid found in her lungs, he believed Crystal had not been killed, that she died from a cocaine overdose. 
The Erie County Medical Examiner, Dr. James Woytosh, agreed with Dr. Baden's conclusion, and almost 15 years to the day after Crystal was murdered, the DA held a press conference where he announced the findings. DA Clark said, Crystal Lynn Gerard did not die as a result of manual strangulation, but rather from acute cocaine intoxication. The death of Crystal Lynn Gerard is non-homicidal, and no one can be prosecuted for her death. To explain the bruises and evidence of a struggle, the DA believed that Crystal could have fallen after overdosing. Dr. Baden told the New York Times, There was sufficient cocaine in her blood to cause death, and there was no other competing cause of death. He said he believed the original medical examiner on the case, Dr. Bike, had ruled it a strangulation even though the signs did not indicate she had been strangled. Dr. Baden cited the fact that the hyoid bone had not been broken, something that is typically seen in strangulations. Dr. Bike had not seen any froth at the time of autopsy, and Baden said it had probably been wiped away by the time she was examined. Baden criticized the defense and Dr. Bike by saying, Medical examiners also make mistakes. It should be a wake-up call for defense attorneys to have their own experts examine the evidence. Many legal and medical experts believed that the conclusion was convenient as it allowed the prosecutors to dismiss the charges without accepting any blame for the wrongful conviction or granting immunity to the man who, evidence suggested, killed Crystal. Many who were familiar with the case, including Dr. Bike, were stunned that the review concluded with a finding of an overdose. Pathologist Werner Spitz told the Buffalo News, It doesn't really make sense. It's a tiny amount of cocaine. There's a lot missing from this puzzle. The hyoid bone is bony, but not in a 13-year-old. It has resilience, so I'm not surprised it's not broken. Dr. Spitz said that the low level found in Crystal's system, 0.02 micrograms per milliliter, made it unlikely that she had died from an overdose. The level of benzolecgonine, the breakdown product produced by cocaine, showed that there had been more cocaine in Crystal's system before her death that had been metabolized. Dr. Spitz asked, why didn't she die when the cocaine was higher? Buffalo-based defense attorney Joseph Terranova explained that many in the legal community were also questioning the finding. Terranova said, The consensus is that this was an opportunistic way of resolving this thing. Most people think it's awfully suspicious. The Erie County Medical Examiner defended his findings, arguing that the hyoid bone had not been the only factors he considered in his decision. He said there was also no hemorrhaging found in the neck, and there was only one petechial hemorrhage found in Crystal's eyes. Strangulation would leave more visible signs. Dr. Bike, who had continued the original autopsy, was stunned by the new conclusion. He said, I do not think it is a cocaine death. That is so low, and there are so many injuries to the face, eyes, head, and neck. That cannot be a cocaine death. That is my opinion. Dr. Bike explained that Crystal was not small for her age, so the trace amount found would not have proven fatal. He continued, Her body organs are almost the same size as an adult. Dr. Bike said there were bruises on Crystal's neck, face, hands, and eyes that were indicative of strangulation. Regardless of the controversy, a new death certificate was issued on February 20, 2008, listing Crystal's cause of death as a combination of cocaine and head injuries. The manner of death was changed from homicide to undetermined circumstances.
DA Clark explained that because the evidence no longer supported the conclusion that Crystal had been murdered, the charges against Lynn would be dropped. He said, This woman has spent a lot of time in jail, which she shouldn't have served. Is the system perfect? No, it isn't perfect. But the important thing is that the justice system discovered the error and corrected it. It's unfortunate it took 14 years to do it. When asked if Lynn would receive an apology, the DA stated, I would say I am sorry that the system made an error, and I am sorry for the time she spent in jail, but I don't think the fault lies solely at the feet of the system. One of Lynn's attorneys, Stephen M. Cohen, said that he fully intended to seek compensation for Lynn, quote, the system screwed up badly. It allowed a pit bull prosecutor to passionately and venomously attack a woman who we now know is innocent. We have a medical examiner's office that apparently missed some important facts at some point, and immunity was given to the most likely suspect. Consequently, an innocent woman has been behind bars for a substantial portion of her life. The emphasis now is to compensate someone who had 13 years wrongfully taken from her. On February 28th, Lynn was officially exonerated. But it was bittersweet because she, like many others, felt as though her daughter had been murdered. Lynn said, It's not going to stay like this. My daughter was not a drug user. My daughter was murdered. There is no question my daughter was murdered. Lynn, along with some of the cold case investigators, theorized that the cocaine found in Crystal's system could have been transferred by Donahue during the attack. Many asked themselves why a 13-year-old honor student who had died wearing the red socks she chose for a Valentine's double date with her best friend would have taken cocaine that night for the first and last time. Lynn went on to say, Justice has not been served. How is justice served if you're turning around saying my daughter was a cocaine user and she just accidentally died? I don't know what to make of any of it yet. It's all sinking in slowly but surely. It's not going to stay like this. My daughter was not a drug user. I've said it all along. Dennis Donahue murdered my daughter. My daughter was going to become a lawyer. That's where her focus was at. My daughter was a very kind girl. She looked out more for me than I did for her. I mean, she was always there for me. And to be an honor roll student, you cannot possibly be doing drugs and remain on the honor roll. I've never seen it. I feel 100% guilty for leaving her home alone. Back then, it was things you did. There were latchkey kids all over the place. I've paid in my own mind for doing that. I'm going to try to put my life back together to the best of my and my family's ability. And I'm going to try to make up for lost time the best I can. I pray to God that the wonderful detectives of the Buffalo Cold Case Squad will not let this rest like this. Detective Delano was incensed by the findings and made television appearances speaking out against the DA's office. He also provided a TV network with video footage of the original crime scene, which showed signs of a struggle, something he said proved that Crystal had been killed. Within a week of Lynn's exoneration, the Buffalo Police Department filed six charges against Detective Dennis Delano for insubordination. Delano was suspended and told to hand in his gun and badge for breaking the chain of command and releasing evidence in the form of videotaped recordings of the crime scene and Donahue's polygraph examination. He was also accused of ignoring direct orders to stop investigating the case. 
While he admitted providing video footage, he proclaimed, The district attorney said there was no crime committed because Crystal Lynn died of a cocaine overdose. If there is no crime, how can there be evidence? As Delano awaited a formal hearing that could have led to his dismissal from the force, many of those he had helped during his career spoke out in support of him. Lynn said, if it wasn't for Delano and his team, I would still be in prison. He has actual proof to show this was a homicide, not an acute cocaine overdose. And he was fighting to prove it was a homicide. He was doing all the right things and he gets suspended for it. That's not right at all. Delano voluntarily retired in 2009. In June 1994, Dennis Donahue finally went on trial for the murder of Joan Giambra. After six hours of deliberations, the jury found him guilty. As there was no evidence left in Carol Reed's case, and he had been granted immunity in Crystal Gerard's case, many felt as though it was the only opportunity to bring a suspected serial killer to justice. Upon hearing the verdict, Lynn said, I'm ecstatic, very happy. It's an indirect victory for my daughter. He will never be out on the street again to hurt anyone else. On March 28, 2008, Lynn Jack Peters filed a claim with the New York State Court of Claims for over $14 million for the 13 years, 7 months, and 8 days she spent wrongfully imprisoned. She also brought a $30 million case against those who facilitated her conviction. Named in the civil suit were District Attorney Frank Clark, Prosecutor Marusik, the City of Buffalo, and the police who prosecuted Lynn. The file states that the police and prosecutors ignored evidence that pointed to Donahue as the true culprit back in 1993. Lynn's case was that, among the ways the prosecutors acted improperly were ordering an incomplete polygraph of Donahue, directing that DNA samples not be tested from his clothes, relying on a non-credible witness, misrepresenting evidence concerning other witnesses, and making misleading public statements. After the cold case investigation unit re-examined the evidence admitted at the trial, as well as physical evidence from the crime scene, they attempted to contact Wayne Hudson. The legal document alleged that the DA, prosecutor, and detectives on the case compelled Hudson to reaffirm his original testimony and threatened another witness who was going to testify that Lynn had called him from a bar during the time the prosecutors said she had killed Crystal. The cold case investigators were told to stop contacting witnesses. After almost five years of back and forth, a settlement was reached after going to court. Lynn's attorney Cohen said that the state finally agreed to a settlement after a forensic expert re-examined the files and concluded that Crystal had probably been strangled and sexually assaulted. Lynn was awarded $2.7 million by New York State in November 2012. After filing for compensation, Lynn said, I didn't get to tuck my children into bed at night. I didn't get to tell them a bedtime story. I didn't get to kiss their boo-boos. I didn't get to do any of that. She had asked reporters, for what amount of money would you be willing to give up your wife and your kids? There's no amount of money that can bring that back. Lynn maintained that she believed Donahue had killed Crystal and vowed to vindicate herself and her daughter's reputation, she said. This is about a little girl wronged. We have already fixed mine. Now it's time to fix this because it's wrong. It's absolutely 100% wrong. 
As Lynn continued the fight to have her daughter's death reinvestigated, she hoped the settlement would provide her and her family with the stability they needed to focus on the case. Unfortunately, things didn't happen that way. While pursuing the case against those who had railroaded her into 13 years in prison, Lynn DeJack Peters was diagnosed with terminal cancer. The diagnosis came before the compensation cleared, meaning she didn't even get to use the money to enjoy her freedom with her sons and grandchildren. In February 2013, 49-year-old Lynn went to the doctors about back pain. Soon after, she learned that she had stage 4 lung cancer that had spread to her spine. The doctors told her that nothing could be done. But as dejected as she felt, she tried chemotherapy, radiation, and other cancer treatments to try and prolong her life. She told the Buffalo News, It's one bad hand after another. I never seem to catch a break. Lynn explained that the diagnosis was rougher than anything they had ever done before. The only thing I can think of is God must be using me to send a message. He is trying to show people that if she can make it through everything, then whatever anyone else is going through, you can pull it together. Lynn was comforted by her belief that she would be reunited with Crystal, but she hoped she would overcome the illness. She said, I have my boys to live for here, but if I don't make it here, I have the love of my life waiting. Lynn died in June of 2014 with her husband and her sons by her side. Chuck told the Buffalo News, I think she found some peace, a sense of herself, getting back with our family. We had her home here for seven years. She was pretty happy. Her attorney, Steve Cohen, who was representing Lynn in the civil case, told the Associated Press, There are different layers of tragedy here. Lynn was deeply sorrowful over the reality that the few years God had given her on this earth, so many of them were spent behind bars, and she was unable to watch her children grow up. She had intended to prove that Crystal had not died of a cocaine overdose, but Cohen said that the civil suit against the prosecutors and county would continue on behalf of her estate. None of those named in the civil suit have been disciplined for prosecutorial or police misconduct to this date. Dennis Donahue died in prison in 2020, and Crystal Lynn Gerard's cause of death remains listed as a cocaine overdose. This episode was researched and written by Eileen McFarlane, editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman, Script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back next week. Thank you for listening, and please be safe.